So, uh, like I said, we're going to be starting in the book of Ruth. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get open to Ruth there. The series is called Redeeming Ruth. And we're going to be looking at, um, really primarily, how God shows up in our lives in lots of different circumstances. And how God makes himself, his presence known, how his sovereignty, how his providence plays out in our lives as we go through different situations that we're going to see here illustrated uh, in the book of Ruth and the lives of the characters therein. This book is a really interesting book. It's Old Testament a uh, very short book, but a very powerful book, and it's, it's actually been hailed by even some um, non-Christian, non-believing uh, people as one of the greatest short stories to ever be written. Um, just this, this, the, the story elements in it and just, the, just the, the literary value of this story alone has gotten a lot of recognition, um, but for us as believers, as followers of Christ, it has even more power to unlock things in our lives that God wants to teach us and show us and lead us in. And so tonight we're going to be talking about God in my mess and what's that look like. And I was, I was kind of thinking through this and have you guys ever had like a, like a favorite shirt, like a favorite hoodie or something that you just love to wear, like, or maybe a favorite pair of shoes or a favorite pair of pants, you know, that you like, you wore them all the time. Like, oh, anybody else with me on this one? All right. Okay. So like in college, I had this one pair of pants that I loved to wear. I wore them pretty often all the time. And, and one time I was out studying with some friends and got home and took off my pants and, and whatever and, and accidentally left my highlighter in the pocket of my pants. And I'm a college kid, right? So, you know, you just, laundry means you just grab everything in the hamper and throw it in at the same time. And so the highlighter got washed, in my, washed and dried in my favorite pants. And so the whole like side of the leg was just completely pink at that point. Um, and it was a yellow highlighter, so I'm not sure how it ended up being pink. But in, nonetheless, it, so I had this big stain ink in my in my pants and so like I was like all right I don't know how I'm going to fix this so I, I started I washed them a couple more times and scrubbed at them and tried to and it was not coming out like the pants were just a mess they were completely ruined and so finally I, I like swallowed my pride and told my friends what I did and and thankfully Courtney was in the bunch and she was like I'll, I'll I, I can I'll take a stab at that and so she like worked and like scrubbed and worked magic on my favorite pants and got the ink stain out of my pants this is before we were even dating like we were barely friends is that fair and uh, <laughs> and so that's how you know you got a good woman when she's getting ink, ink stains out of your pants before she you're even taking her out for dinner yet okay so but nonetheless so she was able to save my pants but the only way that was able to happen was because I was willing to swallow my pride and fess up and confess what had happened and get some help, right? That's the way messes work in our lives with God. You see, the key here, and this is the first thing in your notes, my repentance is the medium that God uses to turn my mess into his masterpiece. My repentance is the medium that God uses to turn my mess into his masterpiece. Okay? And we're going to see that here in the first couple verses of the book of Ruth. I mean, they get right into it. The story doesn't, doesn't waste any time getting right into the mess of what's going on here in their lives. And so if you're with me in, in Luke, sorry, Ruth chapter 1, let's start in verse 1 there. And it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
this is like one of those movies that like they kill like one of the main characters like the first two minutes. You know what I'm talking about? Like like opening scenes and somebody's like getting killed off, right? That's what's happening here. So what I want you to see here in these first couple verses of the book of Ruth is this. I lose most when I lose God. I lose most when I lose God. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just take a look at what happens here. So let's unpack the story. So it gives us the setting here that this, this story is occurring when the judges ruled. Are you with me? All right. What's that mean? Well, so we know there's a book of judges in the Bible, right? So the book of Ruth chronologically actually occurs, takes, takes, uh, uh, happens in the time somewhere in the middle of the book of Judges. We don't know exactly where. It doesn't tell us exactly where, but sometime in that time where the judges were ruling, this story happens. And, and what we know about that story, about that time period in Israelite history in the book of Judges was it was a bad time for Israel. It was a time when it was just an age of evil and sin and rebellion by God's people. And I mean, that's why he had to keep sending judge after judge after judge to save them from their rebellion and save them from their disobedience. It was, it was a bad time. In fact, the, the, the phrase that keeps reoccurring in the book of Judges, it says, they did what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges says that over and over again. They did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, whatever they wanted to, regardless of whether it was godly or not. They just did whatever they wanted. They were their own God. They had lost God. Are you with me? So this is the setting for the book of Ruth, okay? And then it tells us here that in particular for Ruth, in, in, this, in this point in the story, that a famine came to the land, okay? Now, we don't know why the famine came exactly. It doesn't tell us, but I would postulate, I would say that most likely this famine was actually a, a, a measure of discipline from God for the sin of the people. Why do I say that? Because it's paired with the first half of the sentence. The first half of the sentence says, in the time where the judges ruled, a.k.a. in the middle of all their sin and rebellion, famine came. And we know throughout the Bible that God oftentimes uses natural disasters to discipline his people, to, to draw them back, to show them the, the weight of their sin. Now, not every natural disaster is because of people's sin, okay? We, we've had some people try to claim that in the last couple of years here in our own culture, right? This, this disaster is because so these people were sinful and God's trying to whatever. Sometimes, yes. All the time, no. Okay, so let's be careful about when we're assigning that to God. But we do know, like in the Bible, for example, 2 Kings 8, 1, Isaiah 3, 1, Jeremiah 14, 13 through 18, Amos 4, 6, those are all examples where God did use natural disasters to discipline his people for their sin. And I believe that's what's happening here in the book of Ruth as well. So a famine has come to the Israelite country because they are rebelling. They're living in the time of the judges and they're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. But specifically here, it says it's come to the city of Bethlehem. Now we know that city, right? We just talked about that a couple weeks ago. We know it most famously because it's the birthplace of Jesus Christ, right? Now, obviously he hasn't been born yet in, at this point in history, okay? So they don't know it is that yet. At this point, Bethlehem is just some podunk nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But here's the irony. Bethlehem actually means, the name of the meaning, uh, the, the meaning of the name Bethlehem is house of bread. So what the author is saying is that right now, in the house of bread, there is no bread. Because famine has come. Discipline has come upon God's people, upon God's city, upon God's country that he has given to the Israelites. 
And so it says this family who lives in Bethlehem, famine comes, and they're like, all right, we'll just leave. And we'll go to Moab. So what's Moab? Well, Moab is a country about 50 miles away from Israel, so not close. And this country actually was formed by the ancestors of Lot. Okay, Lot is Abraham's brother, if you remember back in Genesis, right? So Abraham and Lot come into the land. Abraham, they're like, we can't both live together. And so he's like, all right, I'm going to go this way. You go that way. Lot ends up going to the east towards Sodom and Gomorrah, gets himself in a whole bunch of trouble with his family, right? They have to leave the city before it's destroyed. His wife looks back, gets killed. And then the apex of the whole craziness is his daughters end up getting him drunk, and they have an incestuous relationship with their father. And out of that relationship... One son is born, and his name is Moab. And all of his ancestors, all of his descendants, his family line becomes the country of Moab. This is the people, the godless people, that, that Imelech's family is running off to, to go live with in the time of famine. This same country was the enemies of the Jews. And so when they came up out of Egypt and they were traveling through, they wouldn't let them come through their country. They wouldn't give them any food. They, like, they did, there were several times throughout history that Moab was actually seen as an enemy of Jerusalem, or of the Jews, rather. Okay? And we know that they were godless because it says that they actually worshipped a false god named Chemosh. Okay? So they didn't, they didn't worship Yahweh. They didn't worship the true God. They worshipped an idol. And so Elimelech here decides, okay, we're gonna, there's famine in Bethlehem, so we're going to leave here. We're going to go to Moab, 50 miles away, to this godless people who are our enemies, and we're going to sojourn there. Why? Because they have a better economy. There's no famine in Moab. Anybody else like already seen problems in this story, in this decision-making? Are you with me? Right? And so it says they're going to go sojourn. What's sojourn mean? Sojourn means they're going to be a resident alien in the country. They're going to live there for a number of months or years, for an extended amount of time. They didn't, they're not part of the country, but they're going to live in the country. And what's really happening here is Elimelech is taking his family and they're running from the discipline of God. Instead of staying in Bethlehem, staying where they're supposed to be, near God, near his people, and just absorbing the discipline and working through that, they run away to Moab, 50 miles, to a godless nation. Why? What's driving Elimelech's decision? He says, I just want to be happy. I don't want to have to deal with discipline. I don't want to have to, to deal with God's rules. I don't want to have to deal with God. Like, I'll just run away. Sometimes we have to be really, really careful what drives our decisions. Because sometimes what's driving us on the inside will lead us away from God. And Elimelech here, this, this story is packed with irony. I love it. So Elimelech's name actually means, get this, Elimelech's name means God is my king. Right? But in this story, in this case, that's far from the truth. In fact, Elimelech's his own God. His, Elimelech is his own king at this point, making decisions for himself, for his family. We know the Bible teaches us that the, that the husband, the father, is the head of the household. And so the decisions that the husband and the father makes, it affects the entire family. So Elimelech's not just leading himself over here. He's leading his entire family away from God into this godless country to escape God's discipline. And then again, irony strikes. And what happens when they get to Moab? Elimelech dies. 
He dies in the country that he went to to escape dying from famine back in Bethlehem. And because of Elimelech's decisions, because of his decision to take his family away from God, his family is going to experience great loss. Elimelech loses his life, right? Naomi loses her husband. The sons lose their father. The remaining family loses any chance of financial future and stability because in this culture, it was, it was the father, it was the oldest male that went out and made a living and, and brought back um, the, the, the resources necessary for the family to live and prosper. And without that, they would be destitute. But ultimately, this family loses everything because Elimelech was chasing the wrong game. This family loses everything because Elimelech was chasing easy life, comfort, happiness, all at the expense of walking away from God to get it. Did any of you, any of you whenever you were younger and you're still living at home, maybe as a little kid, any of you ever threaten your parents that you're going to run away? Anybody else do that besides me? All right. So I remember one time, like, I, I think I was like six year, five or six years old, and, and uh, you know, my parents were be com- being just completely unreasonable and unfair in my five-year-old mind, and obviously that wasn't going to work. And so I told them, I was like, I'm running away. And they were like, great, go for it. So I go to my room, I like pack up some stuff in my little backpack, right? And like, I like, so I'm walking towards them, I'm like, I'm leaving. Like, okay, see ya. And they let me get out the door, and I get down the driveway. I get about halfway up the street. And then somehow my brain registers like, okay, I'm gone. I don't have anywhere to go. Like, I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't have, I don't have any money. I, 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 don't have any, I, don't, I don't know how to survive in this world by myself. And so what did I do? I turned around and I walked my little happy butt right back into the door. Right? And I decided it was better to go back and live under the rules, under the discipline of my parents than to go out and face the world alone, right? That's the same way it works with us and God. It's better to be in God's discipline than the world's disobedience. It's better to be in God's discipline than the world's disobedience. Limelech here, he's trying to escape the, disobedient, the, the discipline. He's trying to escape the famine. And he walks right out into the world and falls into their trap and suffers the consequences. And, and it's easy to read a story like this and look at a guy like Elimelech and be like, yeah, but that's a pretty extreme situation. That's a pretty extreme case right there. Okay. But I think we still have the tendency to do the same thing, at least in our hearts, right? So I'm going to give you a list. I'm going to give you five places we can lose God. Five places that in our lives, in our daily walk, as we're going through life, that we tend to, to maybe lose God sometimes. Are you with me? And just kind of look at this list and see which one of these maybe, maybe applies to you. First one is our wealth. Our wealth, chasing money, right? See, oftentimes when we're, when we're all make, when we're making decisions based on wealth and based on accruing more money, we make things like we, we decide to start working more hours, at the expense of 
family or church or whatever, right? We start making business deals not based on any good ethics or based on any good responsibility to ourselves or the customer or to God, just whatever's going to make us the most money. Or we start propping up material idols in our life. I got to have this, and I got to have that, and I got to have the newest phone, the newest car, and we start chasing all these things that we want. And the whole time we're chasing after these things, we're actually running away from God himself. Number two, maybe it's not wealth for you, maybe it's your career. Chasing success, chasing achievement, right? So you, you, want, to, you want to advance in your company, you want to advance in your career, and so you work and you work and you do whatever it takes and you cut people's legs out from underneath them and you'll, make, you'll do whatever it takes to make the boss happy. You'll work late, you'll ne- neglect your family, you'll lie, you'll, whatever it takes to advance. And then they offer you the next position, but you have to move to this city halfway across the country and you just uproot your family and you run over there and you don't think about church, you don't think about schools, you don't think about, I'm not saying moving's always bad. Sometimes we have to move for our jobs, don't get me wrong. But it's the heart and the mind, it's the heart and the mind behind it. Are we even consulting God when we're making these decisions? And the time and the energy that we invest we put so much time and energy into advancing our career that we don't ever actually give God any of our time and our service. And whatever that looks like. So wealth, career. How about number three here? This one is entertainment. Chasing pleasure. Right? And this comes in lots of different forms. This, comes like, this looks like a lot of different things, right? And, and so this is, you know, we're, we, we, the movies we watch, the music we listen to, the TV shows, the, the sports we like to play, the pastimes we, we get involved with, the clubs we're a part of, whatever it is that you do for pleasure. And we get involved in this, and it's, it's exciting, we enjoy it, and it, it, it makes us feel good, and we don't pay attention to the content of it, maybe. What's coming through that movie, or what's coming through that music, or what's coming through those sporting events, and is it honoring to God or not? And, and again, the, the time that we invest in those hobbies and in those pastimes and those, in that entertainment and, and, and the money we invest in it and we, just, we pour ourselves into it. Anytime I'm not working, I'm, this is what I'm after. And in the midst of all that, again, we can lose God very easily. Fourth one, this is a little more surprising, religion. Right? Sometimes we actually lose God in the midst of religion because religion isn't about God. It's about chasing approval. Right? It's about doing all the work to prove myself and get God to love me. So I'm going to work here at the church. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to work hard. I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to serve this person. I'm going to help my neighbor. I'm going I'm to check all the stuff off my list so I can show God how great I am and gain his approval. Or maybe it becomes a comparison game. Right? I got to do more than so and so, so I look better than them, and God will like me more. Right? Or the other people in my church will like me more. Or my family will think I'm a good person. Right? And we start chasing all this religious stuff, but we're not actually connecting with God. It's actually just building up pride in our hearts, and then that pride separates us from God, and we actually lose God in the midst of chasing religion. And then the fifth one is the one I almost didn't even want to write down. You ever have one of those things like, where like you're reading God's word and like it says something to you and you're like, yeah, I don't really want to listen to that. I don't want to hear that part. I'm just going to skip that one right there. Because this is the one that even the church a lot of times puts a, a stamp of approval on. 
That's our family. And when your family is a result of you chasing fulfillment in them rather than in God, you'll actually lose God in the midst of that. When, when, when your sole focus is, is trying to, to, to help your kids fulfill the dreams that you never got to fulfill in your life, you were never that great at sports, so they're going to be on every team, they're going to go to every practice, they're going to go to every camp, and they're going to be awesome, or, or you can never play that instrument, so they're going to be practicing every night, or you, they're going to study, and they're going to get the grades you could never get. Like, when you start trying to fulfill yourself and your hopes in them, that becomes a problem. Or, or maybe it's not a matter of fulfillment, maybe it's just a, me- a measure of the man kind of thing. Like, you're, when people look at your family, they, it's a reflection of you. And so it's got to look just right, and it's got to be just right, and I gotta have, they have the right clothes, and the, they got to do the right things and have all the right stuff, and, right? And we actually end up making idols out of our kids, and idols out of our spouse, and an idol out of our family. And like I said, unfortunately, sometimes in the church, it's even the acceptable idol. It's okay because it's family, right? Family's good. Family's a God thing, and it is. It's from God, but it should never be your God. The minute that family elevates itself above your relationship, your connection, your following of Jesus Christ, it becomes a problem. You actually lose God in the midst of chasing your family. And so I would just encourage you to look over this list, and the one thing you don't want is to lose God, because you lose most when you lose God. And so are there any of these five areas that in your life, you're most susceptible, you're most likely to fall into this trap of losing God in the midst of chasing these things. Or I'll say it like this. Ask yourself this question. Is my life leading towards God or away from God? Is my life leading towards God or away from God? And when I say leading, I, don't, I mean that in lots of, lots of different ways. Is it leading me towards God or away from God? Is it, is it leading my family towards God or away from God? Is it leading my church towards God or away from God? Is it, is it leading others, my friends, my coworkers? Those, like, is my life leading myself and other people towards God or away from God with the decisions I'm making? Elimelech made a decision to move his entire family away from God. And he suffered and they're going to suffer as a result. Because you lose most when you lose God. Look at verse number four. Four and five. It says, These took Moabite wives, these being the sons, Malon and Kilion. Okay? So it says, These sons, they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. This is starting to sound like Shakespeare, right? Like everybody's dying. Okay? Here's the second thing I want you to see. I continue to suffer when I continue in disobedience. I continue to suffer when I continue in disobedience. It says here they took Moabite wives. Why? Because they're in Moab. And those are the only women around, right? And so if they're going to have any chance of continuing their family, that's their option. There was no like Hebrew e-harmony where they could like find the other Jewish girls in the area, right? Like 
this was pretty much it. Like they, they, were, they were in Moab. And so they married Moabite women. What's the problem with that? Well, Moab worshipped Chemosh. Right? The Jews worshipped Yahweh. So you now have what the Bible calls an unequally yoked marriage. The problem isn't that one was one race and one was a different race or one was from one country and one was, that's not it at all. The problem was one person believed in one God and one person believed in a different God and all of a sudden you're trying to make a family together. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul warns Christians not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers for this exact reason. Because, you see, what happens here is the reason they're continuing to suffer, the reason they're going to also meet their own fate, their own death, is they're continuing in the sin that Elimelech led them into. See, when Elimelech died, he was the one who made the decision to go to Moab, right? At that point, Naomi's in charge. She said, all right, boys, pack it up. We're going back to Bethlehem. But she didn't, right? They stayed. They stayed in the midst of the mess. They stayed in Moab. They took Moabite wives. They continued to try to keep on this track, and here's why. I don't think it was necessarily that they were intentionally trying to continue in sin, but sometimes, sometimes, we can't see clearly when we're in the midst of the mess. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been like, like over your head in the mess and you just can't see clearly to get out? And then you're just stuck there, suffering through this, this mess of sin that you're in. And that's what happens to Naomi and her sons. The only good thing about this is they marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And somewhere in the midst of the mess, God's grace and God's hope shows up. And these two women who formerly only knew Chemosh now get introduced to Yahweh. They get introduced to the true God of the universe. God shows up even in the midst of the mess to show them hope and grace. And we're going to see how that changes their lives in the future part of the story. But at this point, they're still in Moab. Now two men more go down. Right? So the sons also die. So now we have three widows, Naomi, Orpah, Ruth, all widows, no men in the family, nobody go to work, nobody bring home any sustenance, any resources, like they are stuck in a real bad place. And it says they had no kids and no grandkids for 10 years, right? Again, it doesn't tell us exactly why, but I think, again, based on how the story's going, I would venture a guess that it's probably God saying, no, you're not having children. I'm not going to bless you with children, not when you're living like this, Right? It's discipline. It's a curse. And so they have no sons. They have no males. They have no hope of a future. There's, nobody, there's no grandsons coming that can take over the family and help them. And it's, they're stuck. And the sons here, they die just like their father died. And the Bible calls that generational sin. And generational sin is this, that children often repeat the sins of their fathers. See, I've heard some people in the church before teach that generational sin means that the father sins and then the son and the grandson and the great-grandson all have to suffer because the father sinned. No. It's because the father sins and then the son learns the sins of the father and the son commits the same sins. And then the grandson learns the sins of the son and he commits the same sins. I actually heard him say one time, 
that whatever, as parents, whatever we do in moderation, our kids do in excess. Whatever they see us do a little bit, they will do even more. And so that's what happens with sin. Exodus 20 says it like this, 25 and 6, it's on the screen for you. It says, you shall not bow down to them. This is talking about false gods. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That sounds like they're getting punished for dad's sins, right? Except for this next part. Of those who hate me. See, the sons and the grandsons and the great-grandsons, they're suffering as well, not because the father sinned per se, but because they are continuing to sin, just like the fathers. They're continuing to hate God in their own hearts. But here's the best part. Look at this, verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, generational sin is a real thing, but there's something that can break generational sin. It shows, us in, it shows us here in Exodus, it shows us in the book of Ruth, that repentance breaks generational sin. You don't have to do anything simply because your mother or father did it, or because their mother or father did it. Your heart can change when Jesus comes and brings that true life change through repentance. So there was a chance here for them to repent, to go back to Bethlehem, to make things right, and Malon and Kilion could have broke the chain of sin that Elimelech started and had a different story. But they didn't choose that route. So they suffered and they died. You guys, most of you know we have three little girls. And so there's quite often, I'm not sure there's ever a day that goes by that we don't have to do some discipline in our house. I know it's probably surprising for those of you who have worked in kids' ministry and know our kids. Um, but so when I have to discipline our girls, especially the older ones, it pretty much always is like the same process. It's pretty much always the same kind of string of events. I, I, I try to take them, and when possible, I try to take them and get them alone, get them face-to-face, get them focused, okay? And then I ask them a series of questions. Okay, what is the rule about blank, whatever they did, all right? What's the rule about hitting your sister, okay? And they're always like, don't. All right, like that's not supposed to, like that's all you get. All right, and then, okay, good. So when you did blank, when you did hit your sister, what did you do? Disobeyed. Okay, so what happens when you disobey? Spankings. <laughs> and then they get a spanking. Okay, and after they're spanking, they get their hug. And after the hug, I look them in the eyes. I make sure they're listening. I said, do not choose to do this again. If you choose to do this again, you will choose to be disciplined again. You will choose to get another spanking. Why do I do that? Why do I do that same process every time? Not because I enjoy it. (laughs) Okay, I'm sick of doing it. But I do it every time because I want them to know and remember that when they choose to disobey, they choose to suffer the consequences. Here at Harvest, we say it like this. For us as Christians, choose to sin, choose to suffer. That's the way God works. When we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. So the question I would ask you is this. What suffering in your life right now is self-inflicted? 
there are some things in our life that we suffer through that it has nothing to do with our sin at all. It's just because we live in a broken world and bad things happen and sometimes stuff just, you know, stuff happens, right? You with me? Sometimes we suffer just because the world's a broken place. But sometimes, sometimes we suffer because we sin and we're under the discipline of our Heavenly Father. And so is there something in your life right now, is there an area of your life where you are suffering right now because of your own sin? Suffering that's self-inflicted. And if so, what are you going to do about that? Choose to sin, choose to suffer. The last thing, let's look at verse 6 in this passage. It says, Then she arose, that being Naomi, the mother, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. She finally is getting it, right? She said, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The third thing is this. I return to blessing when I return to God. I return to blessing when I return to God. She, Naomi says she got up and she was going to return to Bethlehem. She's, this, this is an outward sign of what's inwardly happening in her heart, right? Like the author here is using her physical action to show us what God's doing in her heart already. We call this repentance. The literal definition of repentance is a complete change of direction. Repentance is, I was going this way and now I'm going this way. It's a change of direction. It's a change of heart. She was in Moab. Now she's going back to Bethlehem. So it says she got up and she returned. Why? Because she heard that God had visited his people. In other words, he had restored them. He had ceased the famine. He had brought rain. He had brought food again. He was restoring Israel. And she knew that if God would restore Israel for what they had done, God would restore her for what she had done. She takes hope in a God who continues to prove his faithfulness over and over and over again. What's interesting is God here, this is the first mention of his name in the book of Ruth. Okay? And, and the, God's name will actually only be mentioned 23 times throughout the entire book, but only two of those times is he mentioned by the author of the book himself or herself whoever wrote it. The first time is here, where it talks about the blessing of food that he gives. It, the author tells us that God has given this blessing of food, that he ceased the famine, right? The second time is going to be at the very end of the book, in chapter four, four where it says that he's going to bring the blessing of birth. All right, not to spoiler alert, okay? But here's, here's the important part, all right? The two times the author talks about God is to show us that God is a good God who blesses his people. That's the picture of God that the author wants you to take away from the book of Ruth. God is a good God who blesses his people when they return to him. See, there are many, we're going to see there are many, many great characters in this story, but there is only one hero. That hero is God himself. No man, no woman. It's God that shows up. 
who's a famous story in the Bible, so famous that even non-Christians know it. We even use the term prodigal in our vernacular, right? You guys have heard the pro, you know, you've heard that, oh, he's a prodigal. Okay, that, what do you even know? Do you know what that means? Like, you even read that story? So the prodigal son comes out of the Bible, right? So there's this son who believes that, hey, you know what? My dad, he's got too many rules and he's just kind of messing up my life. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go off on my own. And so he does and he makes it for a little while and then his life completely implodes and he loses everything. And he gets to the bottom of the pit, the, the end of his rope. And he's like, all right, I, I can't do this anymore. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go back to my father and I'm just going to beg him to just let me be a servant. Like I just, like he's good and he's gracious and I know that, he, that he's, a, he's a good man and he'll at least let me just be a servant in his house. And so he gets up and he goes back to his father. But when he gets back, what he doesn't find is this. He doesn't find any guilt or shame or bitterness or finger pointing from his father. He finds love. He finds grace. He finds restoration because his heart is now repentant. Right? That's the picture here of what's happening with, with our God in this story. It's, it's a father who is faithfully, will show favor and love to those who are repentant. Favor is found in the hand of the God who never fails. You want favor in your life? You want to experience favor in your circumstances? You have to go to the God who never fails. Whatever that takes, whatever that means for you, whatever that repentance looks like, whatever it means to return to him, this is what you have to do if you want favor. So in what area of your life do you need to repent and return to God? Could be big, could be small, could be public, could be private. Could be in a relationship you have. Could be at work. What area of your life do you need to repent of and return to God? Like Naomi's doing here. You see, one of the major themes throughout the entire book of Ruth, we're going to see this theme for the next several weeks as we work through this book, is this. God's providence is seen in his good hand. God is providential and he's good and he's with us. He's sovereign over all things and that's a good thing for us because we know he's a good God. And when we talk about God's providence, here's what I want you to understand because this is where I think sometimes we, we misinterpret or we misunderstand what the Bible's telling us. God has two hands of providence. Okay? Two ways that he is present and working in our lives and in our world. He has his visible hand of miracles. This is things in the Bible like the burning bush and the parting of the Red Sea and angels showing up and shutting lions' mouths. It's like when God reaches into human history and does a miraculous thing and changes what should be. Right? And it's completely clear and evident to everyone that God showed up and did something. Visible hand of miracles. But I would challenge, that's actually the less often way that God works. The second hand is his invisible hand of circumstances. See, God in his sovereignty and his providence, underneath all of our lives, underneath this entire world, is working out all of the circumstances, working out all of the stuff in our lives to bring it together to a good and faithful end for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
It doesn't mean that God gives us no choice. We do have choice. It doesn't mean that God controls every aspect of our lives. It doesn't mean that God makes everything happen. But it means that in, underneath it all, he's orchestrating it so it all comes out in his master plan for good. See, God's not the author of sin. The Bible's very clear about that. He didn't create sin. In fact, he's repeatedly grieved and angered by our sin. Scriptures like Isaiah 63.10, Ephesians 4.30, Psalm 7.11, Romans 1.18, all tell us that God's not the author of sin. He's angered by sin. He hates sin. But God is good, and he works all things for our good, for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite stories to illustrate that is the story of Joseph. If you've never read Joseph's story, man, you need to go read that in Genesis. Right? So but Joseph has some like, really shady brothers who want to get rid of him and sell him into slavery and ship him off, and he just lives, he goes through like bad circumstance after bad circumstance after bad circumstance after bad circumstance. Finally, God exalts him to this great position in Egypt, and his brothers, lo and behold, show up needing food because they're out. Famines hit their land, and they got nothing. They need food. And Joseph is gracious towards them, but here's what he says. Listen to these words from Joseph, Genesis 50, 20. He says, As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Even in the bad circumstances, God's working it for his perfect plan. Paul, in Romans 8.28, most of you would be familiar with this. He promises us this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Right? We have a God who's in charge. A God who is sovereign. The God who is working in providence in our lives day in and day out. It's God, not any man, who brings rescue and good to our lives. To Naomi, to you, to me, it's God. All the time, every time, he's the one behind it all. Whether we can see it or we can't see it. In order to live in that good state, to live in that life that he's preparing for us, we simply have to return to him. When we mess up, when we screw up, which we will do, I do, you do, all the time. We're sinners. That's how it works. But when we do, we get up, we repent, and we return. And God puts us right back there because my repentance is the medium that God uses to turn my mess into his masterpiece. So I just want to pray to that end. I want us to pray right now that we would be able to confess our mess to God and ask him to just come fix it. Like quit trying to hide it, quit trying to act like it's not there, quit trying to handle it on our own and just get real with God for a moment, just you and the Lord and whatever area in your life that is just a mess right now, just be like, God, I need you to show up right here and fix this thing because I am lost. Let's trust that he'll be faithful to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Lord, I thank you, God, that you are a good, good Father. Lord, that you are with us. That you are for us. And Lord, that even when we mess up, or even when we're living in sin, even when we're choosing to rebel against you, even when we're making decisions that affect others in negative ways, Lord, that you never leave us, that you are there waiting for us to turn and repent, to return to you, 
to allow you to take our mess, straighten it out, and make it into something beautiful. So Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would speak to every heart in this room. Lord, that you would press on us right now. Reveal to us any area of our life that is sin. Lord, any area of our life that's a mess. Any area that needs you to come and make it right. And give us the strength and the courage to, to stand and repent before you. And to return, knowing that you will graciously and lovingly take us back. Show us your favor. Show us your blessing. Lead us on our way. Father, we need you in the midst of our masses. You and no one else can fix this. So we give it to you now. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.